You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Onic literature and analyzed it so thoroughly, convincingly. Um, he wasn't necessarily uh, the historian to make sense of what the Gaonim were about and the difference between them and shifts and changes um, and influences. Um, that work was done by someone who was older than the Tziv. And I don't believe, you know, although there might've been some connection that they might've had, um, they lived very different lives. Um, although if by the look of them, you would say, oh, they're, they're both great looking holy rabbis. What I'm, what I'm talking about tonight is sheer. And, and that's why I'm saying the song remains the, with change. Meaning, Shir, Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport, um, became famous as Shir. Now, why would anyone be famous by their initials? Well, as we know, um, initials are a sort of a, uh, a way to sign your name uh, indicating who you are and making it easy to say your name, right? Um, but let's talk even talk about JFK, LBJ, right? Um, uh, it, it becomes synonymous without having to say John Fitzgerald Kennedy. And at the time, at the end of the 18th century, uh, what was arising in Claudius Row, and then it began even to be stronger in the 19th century, were scholars who weren't known as the Ramban and the Rashba the Ritva, the Ralbag, but they were basically known without, the Raish was dropped. And they were known by just the acronym of the first three letters of their name. Um, the, it's true, Mendelssohn was known as Rambaman, uh, and he, of course, was considered the father of, of Haskola in many ways, in terms of opening up uh, the Jewish world to uh, the ideas of philosophy. But basically, the, the writers that were known as the Ma'asfim uh, signed their names in a way that had that literary style. And Rappaport, uh, Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport, joined them. Now, he was younger than they were. He was born in 1790. But by the time the mid part of the 1820s and 1830s, he was writing in the journals that we associate with the masculine or the people who were involved in Chochmah Yisrael. And he was known already as Shir, not as Rav Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport, as this picture indicates, but as Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport. And the name, of course, means a song, but he was not exactly a uh, poetic person. He was a trained as a Talmudist. Um, he was, uh, and his way of thinking was very much one of a, of a Talmudist, but what he zeroed in on, what he sort of put his love and energies in, was something that he felt was muznach, something that was not really developed and understood well, which was the period of the Gaonim, the period of the early Rishonim. And he became, in a sense, the, the greatest expert 
of his time. Now I say the song remains, right? Because his method was something brand new. But let me explain it better. There were intelligent, brilliant men who um, felt that Judaism needed to expand its horizons. Um, and they were even able to write a beautiful, what we would call a rabbinic style Hebrew. But they weren't trained in the, in the, in the, in the analytic method of the Talmud. Um, they sort of scorned the analytic method of the Talmud. Now Mendelssohn, just to be clear about it, did cut his teeth as a Talmudist. But when he turned his um, eyes and mind towards German and philosophy, uh, he didn't use Talmudic training that much as he did just good solid thinking and analysis. Um, it's true when Mendelssohn became older and his doctors put him on a, a different diet and a me different mental diet, uh, he was forced to um, uh, sort of stop writing his philosophic reviews and he said, okay, I'm going to turn to a new thing, which is explain the Torah, explain the Chumash, go into Hebrew uh, philology and, and explain the words and translate. But Mendelssohn's or even the part that he wrote, which is of Sefer Shmos, is not pilpalistic. Um, it isn't necessarily um, uh, one where great discoveries are made. Uh, it is written beautifully, the introduction uh, to the Chumash, the Parish on Kohelis, Mendelssohn was a brilliant man. I would say in terms of his IQ was one of the most you know, intelligent people of his time. Uh, and the fact that he was able to do such a, um, a brilliant job of writing and even, and even coming up with a synthesis of, of a commentary, uh, you know, attests to the, 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 I guess his, the, the strength of his intellect. Uh, but, but he did not, necessarily open up, you know, new brilliant pathways, and you don't necessarily see a, a standard rabbinic way of thinking um, within him. You don't see a novel way of thinking. Rappaport, on the other hand, decided that what he was going to do was to take the learning that was part of his family history, but part of where, of, of where he was trained, and he was going to use that to discover and find in other words, to use the extant sources of Bavli, Yashalmi, Tosefta, Sefri, Safra, and to connect them to the complete rabbinic literature that was at his, that he, that he had access to, and to analyze it, and, and to know it from inside, not just to pick and choose, and to, or to cherry pick certain phrases. So in a way, he was really the first serious, uh, historical scholar of Judaism using the, 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 the tools of that he had been raised with that made him, of course, he was the son-in-law of one of the most important uh, Rabbonim of his time, Rav Aryeleb Heller, the Baal Uh In fact, Rappaport uh, was responsible for raising the funds and for editing uh, the one of the, the posthumous work of Heller, which was known as the Avne Meluim, the Sefer on Evan Ezer, which many people feel is a, uh, is, is a wonderfully written 
and a very accessible, brilliant work. Uh, Rappaport uh, was the editor of that work, and he edited it when he was 21 years old. Um, so it's interesting that he moved away from that world, and he became a champion in a way, a leader of a world that many of his friends you know, didn't wear kippot, didn't even keep mitzvos the way he was used to. And he became part of this group of Chachamim. Um, so it's interesting that when we take a look at this picture, <laughs> this doesn't look like a guy who's, who's after, uh, you know, who's, who is into Haskalah, who's part of the Haskalah world. So you have to realize this painting was done by a famous uh, Christian painter in Prague called Antonin Machik. And we have a number of portraits from him. This is the portrait of, 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 of Rappaport when he was 50 years old, approximately, 50 or 50 uh, years old, when he became the, now this was very uh, important to understand. He became the um, head of the Bezdin in Prague. And this was very, very, uh, um, uh, dangerous ground what his title was going to be. We all know when, when we talk about Prague that the name that uh, everybody associates with, of course, is Yeches Kolando, the noted Yehuda, um, who was in a way, in, in, in the words of my good friend, and in many ways my mentor, but very good friend in Chavusa, uh, David Katz, or David Katz, the super rabbi, the last of the, of the super rabbis. Um, after the noted Yehuda died, the, the uh, community in Prague decided that there cannot be a chief rabbi. Nobody can fill that role. There was something else that happened though in Prague. Prague was really uh, a, a, a nest, a swarming nest of what we would call, you know, um, intellectual masculine. Prague had been, of course, the great Jewish community. We all know about the morale of Prague and others, but it's important to note, even when the Nodi Beuda became the Rav of Prague, there already begun a, a sort of a deconstruction of Prague. It was no longer the, 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 the greatest Jewish community in Eastern Europe. It already had become um, very much subject to the Austrian Empire's attempts to open the community up to all sorts of, of different spirits, the spirit of emancipation and other things. Um, Prague, the Nebuda was the last great Rav, but he was holding things together. His own children, of course, were trained, not to necessarily be Rabbonim, which they were, but also in German and, and other languages. Uh, the world had become different. Um, the Nebuda was able, in a way, to be sort of a guide to go through uh, how the world was changing. Uh, but after his death, not only was there a sense nobody could fill those shoes, there was also a sense we don't need a rabbi like that anymore. And the community was sort of like in, in, in flux for many, many years. Um, in, in, in the mid 1830s, it was sort of decided that we need to have someone, but whoever that person is, he needs to be able to uh, speak German. He has to be able to read German. He has to be able to to, to be able to appear in front 
and, and be able to, to as, as we would say, to be able to speak English like in today, is, is to be able to appear in front of uh, the dukes and duchesses, and he has to be able to also be a chacham in chachmas Yisrael. He needs to know about science. He needs to know about medicine. He needs to be a believer in these things. He can't be an obscurantist. Um, so who would ever, who would be the person who could fit that role? Now there was also something else that originally there was such there was such a, uh, a, a, a issue about who could be the rabbi of, of this city. As I said, he's not going to be called the rabbi. He's not going to be called the the Abbezdin of the whole city. He can't be called the rabbi of Prague. What he could be is the one who's in charge of rabbinic affairs. There's going to be a number of rabbis. Of course, there's, there were still but they dinim. There were still places he had to go for a din Torah. But he, they would be the person that would sort of be the 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 menahel of rabbinic affairs in Prague. Um, sometimes called the rav of Bezdin or the head rabbi. It was it was it was always very vague what they were going to give this title. And also, for the first number of years, even when Rappaport became the rabbi of here at Prague, uh, he wasn't even paid. Um, uh, there was no official salary from the community till a number of years later. Uh, and, and, and that's really what Rappaport really wanted. What did he want? He wanted security. He also wanted the glory. And he also wanted, like I said, to be able to, be, to have this Parnosa and to be able to be away from where he came from, which was in Galicia. Um, you know, he was, he was from Lemberg um, in, in, in Galicia, Rappaport. And you know, what's, there's nothing wrong with being from Galicia, except he felt that he was being caged in. One of the things he hated about Galician Judaism was Hasidic and belief in mysticism. He felt that that ran counter to real, what the Torah was about. And it's interesting that one of the things that he extolled in various works of the Gaonim was the fact that he found the Gaonim had a, if not a Aristotelian view of the world, but not a mystical Hasidic view of the world either. And he was able to find in the works of Sadia, in the works of Rav Nisan, who, as Rappaport points out, is called Gaon, but it's not really a Gaon. He was not in Bovel, he was in Karawan, he was in North Africa. Um, that in their works, a work that's known as the Sefer HaMafteach Talmud, where Nisim um, tries to explain the strange pieces of Talmud, uh, the Sefer HaMafteach, where Nisim decides to explain the weird parts of Talmud Bavli, um, he explains them very much as in a rational manner, as of course Sadugon does as well. Rappaport loved finding these um, these nuggets. He was a very obviously he he, he felt that the Rambam and Eben Ezra and all the 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 mafarshim that we see from the philosophical bent. Uh, again, you might throw the Ralbag in there too, although I'm not sure how many times Rappaport quotes the Ralbag. These were his icons. These were the people he felt Kalyusro needed to be connected to. Um, he was angry at what he saw rising in, in Galicia and in other places in Europe, which was uh, a dependence on a mystical way of thinking. Rappaport felt that through his work in Chochmas Yisrael, perhaps he would get 
adherence uh, to his way, his style. One thing he knew was that um, he couldn't stay in Galicia. Now, he started in Galicia, he started in Lemberg, um, but he wasn't a rabbi. Neither was his father. His father had a job, which was basically he, uh, as you know, we, have, we find this in Chazal as well, the Jews were famous for um, basically being tax collectors and buying the taxes. Okay, let me explain what this means. This means is, and we find this in, in, in the Talmud often, uh, the, the, they would pay in advance what they expected the taxes to be. Now, of course, it would be a lower percentage, and, but the king or the governor or the duke, whatever it was, was willing to take that money and he gave the right to collect the real tax to this Jew. And that's, of course, what Rappaport's father did. His father was Aaron Chaim Rappaport. That was his job. He was in charge in Galicia, um, and, and, and you can make a good profit. You had to come up, of course, and, and come up. You had to have you had to have your hands on enough steady cash, of liquid cash, to pay the king, and then you would do the collection. And often, in fact, always, your collection would be probably 25, 30% more than what you gave straightforward. But this is the way the governments worked. They were willing to do this. This way they didn't have to pay others to be tax collectors. And this is how Rappaport and Rappaport's father and Rappaport himself uh, supported themselves. Uh, and this is the way up until the time um, he was basically until his, mid, until his early 30s, he was able therefore to, didn't have to go and worry about marrying the right wife and becoming a rabbi. Uh, he was able to devote himself to Svarim and Chochmas Yisrael. It's interesting that, that you know, in that period before he was any sort of rabbi, um, I don't think he looked like the picture you're seeing here in front of you. It's also interesting that many of his early works he published anonymously. He knew that it would get him in trouble. He knew that when he would write and perhaps intimate like he did, that the Rambam himself spent years as a secret cloistered Muslim. Yes, Rappaport uh, developed this in, in a monograph that he wrote in the uh, book known as this, this Ascola journal known as Karim Chemed. So this was something that uh, uh, he didn't want his name associated. Of course, the Rambam quickly, when he left uh, Spain and went, was waiting to, to uh, North Africa and towards Mitzrayim, towards Egypt, of course, he became, he was the Rambam. But for years, the Rambam and maybe his father and brother had to live as secret Muslims. Uh, and maybe that was one of the reasons why the Rambam was able to write his Igeris Hashmad. Now, this was a theory that Rappaport um, uh, put forward. He didn't want his name connected to that because, of course, that, that would indicate that the, one of the greatest men of our time uh, actually lived as a Muslim. Um, he also wrote in that journal um, uh, his belief that the, um, and, and, and you know, he, he, he might have reversed himself on this, but his belief that the end of Yeshaya was actually not the original Navi, who we call Isaiah, was actually someone who lived 
much later. In other words, the Yeshaya of, 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 that we have, the Yeshaya that we know of, uh, the way we understand from Chazal, was a Novi who lived in the time of Chizkiyo HaMelech, but, but prophesized about the Churban, prophesized about the return from Bavel, prophesized about Koresh, but it happened hundreds of years after the man had actually died, and that's what made him a prophet. What Rappaport put forward anonymously was that and this was something which I don't think it was Rappaport's own novel idea, but it was something that he uh, developed, and he felt that he he felt that Eben Ezra and other Rishonim that he was an expert in agreed with him was that the end of Yeshaya was actually a different Novi. And as, as you know, and some of you who are listening here might know that we sometimes refer to this as Deutero Isaiah, right? That is what sometimes it is called, that there is a, that there is a second Yeshaya uh, who is, and, 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 and when the Sefer was put together as a book, it was then connected, the old Yeshaya with the new Yeshaya. And you know, again, this is something that, that definitely borders on Kfira. Um, and again, this was something that Rappaport wrote about and, uh, and, and, and developed. Now, none of these things are really that relevant to the Gaonim, but some of the works that he wrote, and the most important ones were, he wrote a, what is considered the masterpiece of, of, of the work on the Balha Oroch. Now, we know what the Oroch is. The Oroch, of course, is a, uh, a dictionary of Talmudic terms. Rashi quotes the Aruch uh, consistently in Shas. <laughs> it's one of the, the major sources of, of what words mean. There are places, of course, where the Aruch isn't just a, a lexicon, but also represents in, interpretations of difficult pieces of Gemara that come out with a whole different Lamdisha understanding of the Sugya. One of the most important places, of course, is by uh, the Gemara Ksuvas about the Malacha, about Malacha and the Dabashena Maskaven, and then Psikresha, the Leinichale, what does it mean? The, the Orach zeroing in on, on some of the strange terms that the Gemara uses about a beer, um, a, a, um, a spigot, and, 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 and the stopper that's used for the beer spigot the, of the Nezaisa. There, the Aruch goes on and takes that weird phrase and gives you an explanation of that piece of Talmud. And not only does he translate the word, but he gives you the sense of what the Talmud means there. So the Aruch is a very fascinating place to look for uh, to understand the Talmud and also to understand a whole different approach to the Sugil and that maybe it was the standard one. So a work on the Aruch was a Deseradim, and uh, Shear started that work. What he did was he, 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 and of course he wasn't the first one. There was already, Rabbi Yamin Mosif of Italy had already uh, added to the Aruch. And, and mo, if, you, if, you, if you have a safer Aruch and you look it up on Hebrew books or whatever, you'll see that it's not just the original Aruch by Rabbi Nelson of Rome, that's where he was from. He was from Nelson of Rome. But it's also the Mosif Aruch from Rabbi Yomin Mosifa. What Rappaport did was he went 
he, he disconnected the Arach from all the later attachments to it, zeroed in on what Rav Nassim himself wrote, and analyzed the sources from where what Nassim was taking. The, the Gaonim, in other words, and, and or Hananel and others. And he was able to, to, to paint a picture from the work itself of the life and, 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 and inspiration and the purpose of what the Arach wanted. And he turned the Arach from a uh, sort of a bland dictionary into someone with an actual mindset. And that there was a reason why he chose what he chose, that the Arach wanted to, to in a way advance a certain way of learning the Talmud by the types of translations and, and, and things that he offered to the reader. Um, now, one thing I, I should tell you that Rappaport, um, his, if, if you read, uh, for example, his, his history of the Aruch or any of them, what you're going to find is footnotes that are, this is his monograph on Rav Haigon and his works. Okay, so here you see, Rabbeinu Haigon Pumpadisa, the son of Rav Shiragon, um, and he goes, he takes him back all the way, you know, all, you know, his, uh, he takes him back to his father, his grandfather, his great-grandfather, um, and he mentions here, of course, when he was born, when he died, and as you can see, I'll read a little bit of it. Oh, would be Urov, even when he was young, Mirabo, Oasis, the flows from Dulas Ruchovarochabribo. They already saw the indicators of, of, of his incredible largeness of spirit, how wide his heart was, how understanding. And how do you know that? Because we know Kibioso Ben Ches, when he was only 18, his father already made him, his father was Rafiragon, made him the Avvezdin. And when he was 20, he gave him the kavod that his name Gam Shmo Whenever there were answers that Shrira would send far away, it would be a dual letter. The letter would be from Shrira and Hai, or the questions were asked from Shrira and Hai. And by the time he was thirty, his father, in a way, said, "I'm retiring, and Hai is going to be." The Gaon of Sura. And, he, and even while he was alive, and at the age of 30, it was bestowed upon him this type of honor that lasted for 40 years until his death. And that was the that glory of Gaonic uh, title then left the Jewish people. And he was the last. And after him, it's almost like, although there were still people calling themselves Gaonim, it's almost like, and this of course is an example here, a little bit of Shear's hyperbole. It's as if they stopped learning the Talmud in Babel. Even in his day, they stopped. Even in High's time, Talmud was not as strong as it was when he first began. And he himself would, was upset about this. I was. Harav, Rav Shlomo Ibn Gabiro, of course, the famous poet, 
Chiberkina al Malso, he wrote a dirge on the death of Ai, the Nishman Rakruz Echod, but we only have one um, one couplet of it left. Yokor Umeshaber Leva Kore. It's a precious one, and anyone who reads it is moved by its emotion. Um, now, that is the first paragraph. And as you can see, there are seven footnotes. Now, I'm going to show you now the seven footnotes. Okay, I read one paragraph. Let's take a look and see how long it takes to get through those seven minute read. And the only reason I'm saying this is because Rappaport uses a language that is pretty foreign to a modern Hebrew reader. Even a professor in, 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 in Judaic studies uh, today might have a little bit of a difficult time reading what I just read. And the reason is because Rappaport did not write in Ben Yehuda's Hebrew. He wrote in the Hebrew of, of his day. And of course, it's, it's poetic. Uh, he turns a lot of phrases with references. But basically, and you could probably read up until here in about 10 minutes. But take a look. That's two and a half pages. And then you have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, basically 14 pages of notes for two and a half. Now, that is probably, now there's some of you here that are stylists. Some of you are, have written professionally before um, and you've written you know, monographs and essays. Um, you can see how it's pretty top heavy when it takes two pages of the actual script and 15 pages of notes on that. That is sort of Rappaport's problem um, in a way. And that's why many people have a hard time. First of all, the Hebrew, like, as you can see, even from that first paragraph, you need to be somewhat of a, of, of a uh, you can't just be uh, an initiate to get through it. He doesn't just say he's born here and he died here and he was very brilliant, right? Uh, he uses you know, poetic language, but also his notes. And it takes a lot of patience to go through them and to see what he's really after. Um, he's quite uh, polemical. Uh, he deals with the people he disagrees with. And instead of just saying, look at what, that, look what I wrote here, he goes out of his way to quote at great length. Um, and therefore, for the modern reader, it's sometimes difficult to say, okay, I wanna find out about Rav Haigon. I'm gonna read Rappaport's monograph about it. He's probably gonna go to the Wikipedia page or go to someplace, even if he reads Hebrew, that is not that way. So I go back to the title of our of our shear today, right? The title is the song remains, but it's changed. Meaning we all are indebted to Rappaport for opening up these sources. Even where we are rediscovery of them and the way we look at them, we might come to very strong differences from him. But if it had not been for him, um, it's possible that this whole area that became a treasure trove of, 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 of learning, which is well, who were the Gonim, when did they live, what are they about, what, did each, what was each one after, 
Rappaport was the one who said, you, we can find the answers, not from speculation, but we can find the answers from their words themselves, but we need to know how to look. We need to know how to research. We need to know how to find the types of sources that Rappaport marshaled. We can now build on them. And one of the sentences from Rappaport, these books of Nisim are known because they're mentioned by earlier sources. Again, Rappaport was the one who taught us how to find these sources in, you know, in, as we would say, in some Tzavarkana place. There's only one book from Nisim that has been printed. Even in manuscripts, we don't really didn't know about them, except about 50 years ago, that was in the, in the 18th century, that's the Chida, in his uh, wandering around Europe, Chaim Yosef David Azulai was sort of the proto, you know, he did work that Rappaport built on. He happened to have seen, when he wrote his famous Shema Dolim, some of these manuscripts of Nisim. But he says, well, and, and I'm going to copy what Chido wrote and tell you about these works that Chido saw in manuscript. But here's the part that, that's important for my, for our purpose tonight. By my placing them in this organized fashion with numbers, so you'll know exactly what he wrote, the people who have the wherewithal, who want to have the energy, who, who have the time to go searching around in these libraries. Now that I've given you the clue, go find the lost ark. Go find this treasure. Rappaport writing in 77 years old. But scholarship, as I said, changed in a way. He opened it, but they, uh, and, and he was correct, because what happened after his lifetime was the Cairo Gnizo. <laughs> and that, of course, changed many of what Rappaport thought was true. One of the things that Rappaport thought was true, that was something that we talked about um, in this year last week, was the use of the Yerushalmi by the Gaonim. Rappaport wrote the following. 
I think it's pretty interesting, Rappaport wrote. Sha'od lo hi'iru Talmud. Omash, the people who write about what Shas is don't say that rov hagonim arishonim kimat shalo yodu klal mi Talmud Yerushalmi. The early Gaonim didn't even know about what was happening in the Yerushalmi. The ones who did know about it looked at it just periodically. She says, say for Kadmon, we know one of the earliest books known as the Shiltas, which we've talked about often here, that's full of Psukim and Rayas, Mitalmid Babli. Why doesn't the Shiltas ever quote the Yerushalmi? And then he said, there was a, a Truvas Agonim edition that was printed in 1792. And there's lengthy uh, essays from the Gaonim all about the Talmud and other questions, and they never mentioned the Yerushalmi. The only people, he says, who mentioned the Yerushalmi is who? In the Igris Rav Shiragon and Rav Hai. True, that's the famous letter of Rav Shiragon about the history of how the Talmud and Mishnah developed. So there you find discussions of the Yerushalmi. But Rappaport calls them Achrone Agonim, Mamish. Those are the last ones. True, they were Gedolim, the Chochmas Atalm, Bikoshalatayam. Shrira and Hai were bigger than almost all the ones that preceded them. And therefore, because of their greatness, they felt they needed to go out of their way to look into any book they could because they were interested in, in making Torah great and glorious. But if you take a look at Shrira and Hai's responsa, not the book, that, not that one letter that they wrote that was sort of like that crowning piece of history. But if you look at what they did, the nitty gritty letters that they wrote, answering halachic questions, you'll see that they don't mention the Yerushalmi at all. From there, Rappaport goes on to say that even though they had it, there was an attitude, we don't look there anymore. Now, that is Rappaport's statement. The writer of this essay, Poznansky, Poznansky writes, we're going to see that Rappaport is wrong. Because even though the Shiltus doesn't quote the Yerushalmi, the words of the Shiltus in many places are clearly taken word for word from the Yerushalmi. And even the work that Rappaport mentions, that Shari Tzedek, that edition of the Gonim, where the Yerushalmi is mentioned, um, if you, he's wrong. It says there, Talmud Eretz Yisrael, the Yerushalmi is dealt with, talked about. Um, Rappaport sort of stuck to his guns because he was criticized for writing this. Um, but what really uh, disproved Rappaport was the Cairo Geniza, where we found uh, consistently um, letters and other proofs that the Gaonim knew about the Yerushalmi, looked in the Yerushalmi. As I said last week, they had a certain opinion about the Yerushalmi of, of when to use it, when not to use it. But it wasn't something that was foreign to them. It wasn't something that they didn't know about. It wasn't something that they barely by Rappaport's Masconas are wrong, is because he didn't have enough information. He himself knew 
that there was going to be more material. Um, and he was right. Uh, especially at the end of the 19th century, um, there was a, uh, a, a demand to sort of look through the treasures. Uh, there was, we know about all the tomb raiding uh, that occurred in, in, in those areas. When the Cairo Geniza was discovered, uh, along with all these wedding invitations and like ridiculous letters and, and silly poetry and love letters, there was also the Chuvas of the Godin that were found, pieces of, of, of books that, that proved uh, totally and completely that what Rappaport was saying was, was incorrect. However, that doesn't mean that his methodology needs to be thrown out. I think one thing that we need to realize is that we have to be careful about making these bold statements. Now, bold statements make for a good story. History is, is, it sounds better when you can say something decisive. With Abraham Lincoln, a new era dawned in the United States. Well, Abraham Lincoln is definitely one of the most important uh, persons of that period, but is it a completely new era, right? We all know the debate as to how to write history. Is history written about the great men or is history written about the details of everyday life? There might've been great men whose works indicate uh, an advancement of thought, but that doesn't mean that it was making any difference on the ground to the average person. What is history about? The history of great people or the history of how people ate supper and got their mail delivered. This has been a, a debate among historians for years. One thing that Rappaport wanted to do was to put a glory into Jewish history and to, and to make these figures come alive to people and to talk about, you know, obviously some of the concession and he had no money. Now, by that time, Rappaport had made a number of friends, two of his best friends, who he never really, I don't, I don't know if he ever met them face to face, but was involved with them uh, in writing. One of them was Shmuel David Lutzata from Padua, Italy. And the other was from Berlin, Yomtev Lippmann Sunz. Um, Sunz and, and, and these three are considered in a way in the second generation of Maskilim, the three great, uh, it's like Tinker's Evers and Chance. Actually, it's bigger than that. It's more like Gehrig, uh, Ruth, and Ty Cobb. Uh, these three names, Yomtev Lippmann Sunz, Shmuel David Lutzato, and Shlomo Yehuda Rappaport from th different parts of the world. Rappaport, because of his writings about Rafsadia, especially the way Rafsadia did not believe in reincarnation and many other things, when, when Rappaport wrote his monograph on Sadia, Shmuel David Lutzato in Italy, little, uh, 10 years, about 10 years younger than Rappaport, felt he felt a kindred spirit. He was uh, a, a very precocious, brilliant writer, very fiery and emotional. Um, and, and much more of a poet and a, uh, excel in biblical exegesis than Rappaport was. Um, and, and in many ways, a person uh, much more of a philosopher, uh, a thinker of, uh, in, in, of Judaism in a big picture way. Um, he, he did love Svarim and he did also was one of these people who was able uh, to find in the libraries of Italy, a number of very important uh, pieces of, of literature, including collections of Chugas Agonim. Lutzato started to write to Rappaport and Rappaport back to Lutzato. 
um, Sunz in Berlin uh, wrote, although he could write Hebrew well, decided he was going to write in German. Sunz was of the opinion that basically Jewish literature and Judaism in general was going to basically devolve. It was going to become absorbed into um, the, the basic larger culture. And what Sunz wanted to do was to write a fitting epitaph to Jewish literature. And he wrote a number of major works, a whole work on, 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 on the Piyutim and Jewish poetry and on the Drushas. Um, and, and Sunz's work is considered uh, trailblazing and extremely important. Um, some of it has been translated into Hebrew. Most of his stuff uh, is, was written in German. Sunz and Rappaport exchanged letters, Litzato exchanged letters. Rappaport said, get me a job. Maybe I can be a rabbi in Berlin. <laughs> Maybe in Berlin they'll appreciate me. Problem was Sunz tried, but the, 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 the community in Berlin wanted someone whose German was flawless, was excellent. And Rappaport, although he can manage in German, was and, and, and was able to pick up languages, did not speak German like uh, a German rabbi should. In Italy, uh, Rappaport thought he could maybe uh, join Shadal as part of some sort of teaching college. Now Shadal had Utsato, again, Shindal and Lamed, Utsato, Shadal. Shadal had a small college yeshiva where you got smicha, right? It was a yeshiva like YU in a way. It only had about 10 or 12 students uh, and many of them were actually uh, going to medical school because there was, a, as you know, in Italy, there was a medical school that allowed Jews, unlike schools in Austria and other places where they hadn't yet opened the medical schools for the Jews, there was a number of Ashkenazi uh, people in, in Italy going to medical school in Padua, and many of them spending some time with Shadal in his small little uh, you know, Torah college that he developed. Well, he wasn't able to, to get jobs in Italy or in Germany. Eventually, the people who liked Shear arranged for him to become the rabbi of a city called Tarnopol. So he was the rabbi in Tarnopol, and he had that job for three years. But as I said, his eyes were on outside of Galicia. The, the Hasidim already uh, assumed that he was poison. He was somebody that um, they did not want to be connected to. He was someone, and in fact, he had written uh, a, a, an essay that was circulating about how the Rebbe's themselves were phony. Um, he had a, a, a nephew by the name of Tzvi Bodek, I believe, and part of what uh, Shear had written was that these guys are snake oil salesmen. They don't even really have Ruach HaKodesh, right? The only reason they're able to seemingly be able to predict things and to say things is because they they just know psychology. Uh, they know enough about people to tell them what they want to hear. Well, when people realized that 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 this rabbi of Tarnopol had written this anti-Hasidic tract, I mean, the Hasidim knew at that time, Hasidus was strong enough that they could get a rabbi thrown out and they did whatever they could. They wrote to the Chassam Seifer, um, they did, that, that, that Rappaport, along with other rabbis, was responsible for the closing of Mikvoyas. And this was sort of true. Um, uh, there was a movement by certain Haskalah leaders to close the mikvah for men. The reason was they felt that the mikvah should only be open for women. 
this idea that the, the public mikvah should be a place where um, men come every day, which is what Chassidim do, because they come to the mikvah before davening every day, this was something that was an anathema to the enlightened spirit. The bathhouse, first of all, the mikvahs were dirty. Uh, there was the hint of homosexuality happening in the mikvah, men parading around naked with each other. Um, also the idea that by going to the mikvah, they would spend hours there. And by the time the chassidim would come into shul, uh, they basically uh, while away the day, two hours in the mikvah in the morning, starting davening late. So the chassidim who had started to find places to live uh, and, and, and communities to sort of take over, uh, there was this tremendous resentment by the Ascola world. And Shear joined them in their condemnation. And basically, Shear signed some of the documents closing Mikvayas, that the Mikvayas would be closed, that the only times you could go to the Mikvah were for women. Now, the Chassidim and others decided to send the letters to the Ksam Seifer um, to, uh, to basically lambaste uh, Rappaport and say, look what this man is. He might seem like he's a rabbi of Tarnapol, but really we know that he wrote the screed against Hasidus. We know anonymously he published all this apicarsis when he was young. And now he's trying to, to, to basically uh, hammer against what we consider normative Judaism. Well, Rappaport somehow was able to, to save himself and uh, was able to push himself as the candidate for Prague, but it was not easy. Um, one of the people who stood in his way was someone who, uh, you know, who was probably could have been his best friend and, and maybe should have been his best friend. Because there's one other figure in, in Judaism that sort of did something similar to Rappaport, and that is the Maritzchius or Tzvi Hershchius. Um, and in fact, Tzvi Hershchius was quite enamored of Rappaport. He was 15 years younger than him, and Rappaport encouraged him. He also wanted to have a historical sense of, and, and, and he also wrote monographs and essays about the Targumen and about the Talmud, how the Talmud works, the, his, his safer on, 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 on how the Talmud works. Um, like Rappaport, he loved the Rambam. He wrote a safer defending the Rambam from criticism that he was, that his philosophy made him anti-human. Um, However, and, and, and for years, Rappaport um, sort of was an encouraging force for Shear and for, for, for Marzkius. The Marzkius was the Rav in Zolokiv, and Rappaport was the Rav in Tarnopol. But surprise, when the people of Prague decided that they were going to have a job, <laughs> Marzkius wanted that job too. And he felt that he was actually a better candidate than Rappaport. And the reason was, was because although Rappaport's knowledge of who's who and what's what, and his shlita on, on the whole of rabbinic literature was unmatched, Maritzchias could still, was still a more standard rov in terms of a posik, in terms of shlita on shas and poskit on shulchan aruch. Rappaport knew the rishonim. Rappaport knew the goonim. Rappaport knew who was who and what's what. He could tell you about uh, changes in how names were written, and he could tell you how many Tanah Debe Rabbi Shmoles there were in the Masechta. But he wasn't 
necessarily uh, a, a rav in the mold of the Chsam Seifer or Kivager. That was more of the Maritzchias, despite all his writings. So the Maritzchias felt that he would want that job, even though he knew that Rappaport had already asked and tried to get that job. And because of what was, because of that, they unfortunately became uh, enemies. Um, the Rappaport, that when the Maritzchias wrote a Sefer um, about the Targumen called Igeras Pekores, uh, a letter about uh, uh, understanding all the Targumen, uh, a letter of, of, of scholarship, uh, Rappaport signing his name, uh, published in the Haskola Journal magazine, Karen Mohamed, a 50 page, I believe, I don't know, it's about 45, 50 pages, uh, basically uh, taking apart almost every page and with a polemical um, poison pen of how, you know, he's a liar, he's, he, he doesn't know what he's saying, and also he stole from me. <laughs> you know, these things that he's saying here, he took, he didn't invent that himself. He took it from my good friend Sun's. He took it from me. Um, and he, one of the things that, that, that detracts from his, him as an important thinker was his willingness to get down and dirty and, and really insult totally and completely. So basically he said, the only thing that's good in this book, he stole. And what's not, what he didn't steal, Bob, he's wrong. Right? <laughs> so, that's basically what he said about, about the Maritzkias. Um, and the truth was, the Maritzkias himself was in trouble with the Hasidim as well. The Hasidim also felt that he was a wolf in sheep's clothing. Um, you know, they, they were not happy with him. Uh, the, the great Hasidic leader of Tzvi Hershev Zidichoy, the Malbim's Rebbe, and others felt that a campaign should be, uh, should be developed to, to, to get the Maritzkias out of town. Um, he should not be the Rav of Zolotov. He shouldn't be a Rav, um, even though, as you know, his chidushim are all over the Vilna Shas. Um, my point is, is that these two were in a way the most similar. Um, uh, the Martzchius, uh, you know, Tzvi Hershchius, I'm sure the name is familiar to most of our listeners. He deserves his own, the, the, instead of being one or two pages, which is what an average encyclopedia is, you know, he has like, you know, 60 pages about, you know, Agatha or what Agatha is or what, or even Ashkenaz, um, those books that he wrote, these elephantine-like tomes were eviscerated in the mid-19th century Haskola literatures. Haskola magazines that would review his books would say, here comes Rappaport again, this old man writing these books that go on and on, this sort of diarrhea of the pen where everything is there and he just keeps on writing. And he, and, and he, he for some reason, he, he gets into some little minutia detail that he spends five or six pages trying to clear up. Nobody cares about it. Um, so he became sort of obsolete. Um, the, he was in a town that, although Prague had a big name, Prague's influence was waning. Prague's influence, it, 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 and those of you that have been there realize that the Prague was not a major player in Jewish life in, in, the, in the mid 19th century. Rappaport was getting his money finally. And he was able to still write stuff, but um, his significance was extremely diminished. 
and he never really attained uh, like like uh, unlike the Martzvias, who after his death, you know, really you know retained a lot of the accolades. People uh, you know continuously because uh, he was printed in the Vilna Shas, his works were were you know referred to and referenced. Um, the Chuvas some Sofer, there are Chuvas to to the Martzvias, critical ones, but still he sort of has a name in Netzach as some Sofer himself wrote in three or four chuvas. Rappaport's sort of like, you know, he's he he was passed by. And yet I think that one of the things that um uh, the reason why I chose Rappaport was to say, had he not fought that battle, had he not decided to to fight for the for for the for history, I don't know if 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 there would have been that clear path. Yes, there might have been Asim Hasaf or a Jacob Katz or others who would have understood the method, but I think that Rappaport showed the way of how to do it. I have, even though he sometimes made, made mistakes as well, but you needed to have this total control. He was not a person who went with a vision towards what Judaism needed to become. He just wanted it to be more scientific, more scholarly. He was against what had arisen. But he did not formulate, like his friend Shagal, or like even like Krachmo, a a, a a a a a completely balanced vision of what a modern Judaism should be like, and what a modern community should be like. He did not have really communal skills. He really was a rabbi just for the sake of of being able to have the time to have money and to do his scholarship. Right? We, we don't have chuvas from him in terms of standing uh, with, like the Martzkias did in certain places, you know, in the breach. Rappaport, uh, in a way, um, is, 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 is a tragic story. But, in a way, but without Rappaport, I am convinced that this area of the Gaonic, the Gaonic world would be closed. It would still he. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.